Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Voices of Conscience from an Ethical Perspective. My name is David Nasby and I will be moderating today's forum. The Westminster Town Hall Forum originates from the sanctuary of Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. This today is the first of three Westminster forums to focus on the issue of children and violence, cultivating a change. We are very pleased to welcome Dr. James Garbarino today. Too often the face of violence today is the face of a young man or adolescent boy. Is it possible to identify those males at risk before the violence happens? Dr. James Garbarino does just that. Honored by the American Psychological Association and the American Academy of Pediatrics, Dr. Garbarino seeks to identify the causes of violent behavior and seeks to offer solutions. He is the, the author of the best-selling book, Lost Boys, Why Our Sons Turn Violent and How We Can Save Them. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Garbarino. We approach this issue of violence today in a very different way than we would have done even a few years ago. And that is part of the story I think we need to tell. Just even a few years ago, this was an issue that was consigned and confined to the margins of our society. It was hard to get people to take an interest. Today something has changed and the issue of youth violence is very much in the national consciousness. I see that in a way in my own children. When my son was 17, we lived on the south side of Chicago, a sort of objectively dangerous place to live, the kind of place where when you go out at night, you feel worry. If you go out late at night, you feel fear. Nonetheless, my son felt safe living on the south side of Chicago. This all came to a head one night when he was 17. He was on his way out, and I said to him, Josh, be careful. And he said, Dad, don't worry about me. So look at the newspaper. Well, the newspaper that day was the Chicago Tribune, and it was the culmination of a year-long project in which every time a kid was killed in the city, they did a front-page in-depth story. And that night, they had published the picture of every kid who'd been killed. It was a grim, grim kind of issue. But what my son said when he looked at that newspaper was, Dad, don't worry about me. He said, how many blonde white faces do you see there? And he was truly correct that almost all the faces were African-American and Hispanic. And because he was white and middle class, he felt a sense of immunity, <clears throat> despite the fact he lived on the south side of Chicago. When he said that, it reminded me of something that happened just a few weeks earlier. I'd been on a community forum, one of four professionals, another psychologist, a psychiatrist, and a lawyer, all of whom were African-American. And we got to talking during the break, and it turned out we were all parents of teenage boys growing up in the city. And it became very clear that while I felt worry when my son went out at night, they felt dread. They felt the sense that their boys were part of this endangered species. And that's really what my son was picking up on, the sense of white privilege and immunity. Well, fast forward a few years to a year and a half ago, the morning after the Springfield, Oregon shootings, when Kip Kinkle uh, shot kids at his school. 
which came as the culmination of a long string of school shootings involving white, middle-class, small-town, and suburban kids. Now my daughter was reading the newspaper, only now we lived in Ithaca, New York, a kind of idyllic university community set up in the central part of New York State. But as she read the newspaper, she looked up and she said, Dad, I wonder who it's going to be in our school. That in the space of a few years, she had sort of given up her sense of white privileged immunity because she could see herself in the pictures of the dead children and youth. And I think that's an important change that's happened, one that we have to recognize and, and deal with. The fact that the, the massacres that occurred in schools to white kids are part of a long, slow massacre that's occurred to other kids and other families and other parts of the community for a long, long time. Part of what I've tried to do in this book, Lost Boys, is to look at the inner life of kids who kill, not just inner city minority kids, but white middle class kids as well, and to see the similarities in the way they look at the world, the way they experience the world, and some of the things they do back to the world. I think that offers us an opportunity to bring ourselves together on this issue in a way that hasn't been there before in the past. That this is now everyone's issue. And as I said, I see that in my son and my daughter's own response. But like any challenge, the question is whether we will respond in a well-grounded, deeply understanding way, or if we will respond with hysteria. You know, we have a history of responding hysterically when we're challenged as a country. You remember that at the beginning of World War II that uh, thousands of Japanese Americans and Japanese American citizens were rounded up and sent off to detention camps in a kind of hysterical response to the legitimate threat of the war. In the wake of the Littleton shooting, kids all over the country responded hysterically to this. There were thousands of bomb scares and threats made, and adults responded hysterically too. In Port Huron, Michigan, for example, four teenage boys, two 13-year-olds and two 14-year-olds responded hysterically. A few weeks after Littleton, they began to talk in the middle of a classroom. Wouldn't it be cool if something like that happened here? Maybe we could do something like that. Shooting off their mouths, puffing themselves up in this grotesque kind of ritual. And a couple of days later, they continued to talk about it, fabulating, confabulating this fabulous plan well, these boys needed serious attention, but they didn't need the hysterical response that they got. The boys were arrested. The two 14-year-olds have been charged as adults with conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. If convicted, they would face mandatory life imprisonment. That, to me, is a hysterical over-response to what is a serious threat. On the other hand, we can't re respond with complacency and denial. We can't simply think, this is over, it won't happen again. Maybe you saw the New York Times poll that was issued yesterday in which 52% of the teenagers polled said they thought something like Littleton could happen in their school. Well, they're right. Virtually every school in America contains in it boys who are troubled enough, angry enough, who have scenarios of violence and revenge in their heads, who have access to weapons to become the next school shooters and they join in the ranks with other boys who aren't in school, who have in their heads trouble and anger enough to kill other people. To understand this issue without hysteria or complacency, I think we need to look deeply into it. Now, deepness is not our strong suit as Americans. We're the just-do-it culture. We're practical, we get out and do it. 
Where we often fall down is understanding and thinking deeply about things. There's a German-American psychologist who used to teach at Cornell many years ago who spoke to this issue. His name in German is Kurt Levine, but anglicized it's often pronounced Kurt Lewin. Levine wrote, there is nothing so practical as a good theory. Now, to an American ear, that often sounds like a kind of contradiction in terms. We tend to think there's practical, and then there's theoretical. But Levine understood that to do things well, efficiently, and effectively, we need to understand things deeply. And we as Americans have trouble with that. Perhaps one antidote is to remember something I like to call the parable of the lamppost. A parable is a teaching story, and this is one we all need to remember. In the parable of the lamppost, a friend of ours, let's call him Joe, is on his way home one night from a meeting. And he comes upon his friend George on his hands and knees on the street under a lamppost, feeling around. Well, Joe says, what's the matter, George? And George says, well, I've lost my car keys, you know, and I live 35 miles away, and I can't go home until I find them. Well, says Joe, let me help you. So he begins to search around, grope around on the street under the lamppost to no avail. Finally, Joe says, George, what we need to do is approach this problem systematically. We need a public health approach. So from his pocket, he peels a piece of chalk, and he draws a grid there on the street under the lamppost. And he labels the boxes A through Z and 1 through 26. He says, now we can search systematically. And they begin to search box A1, box A2, box A3. Finally, they get to box Z26, and they haven't found the car keys. So Joe says, no, what we need, George, is a more behaviorist approach. So from his other pocket, he pulls a bag of M&Ms. He says, now, George, I'm going to feed you these M&Ms to get your behavior under control. And soon he's got George moving right and left and back and forth. It's very impressive. But they haven't found the car keys. Well, says, Joe, no. He says, what we need is a more psychoanalytic, psychodynamic approach. So he begins to ask George about early experiences of loss in his life. And soon George is connecting the loss of his teddy bear when he was two years old to the loss of the keys and developing great insight. But they haven't found the keys. Well, says Joe, no. He says, maybe what we need is a support group. So he gets on his cell phone and calls other people who've lost their keys. And they, they talk with George, and pretty soon George is feeling okay about losing his keys. But they haven't found the keys. So Joe says, maybe we need a campaign to find the keys. And from his bag, he pulls a banner that says, find the keys. And he begins to pass out t-shirts that say, find the keys, and little blue key-shaped ribbons. But they haven't found the keys. So finally, Joe says, maybe we need a really radical approach. Now, George, where were you when you dropped the keys? And George says, well, I was about 150 yards up the road when I dropped the keys. And of course, Joe says, why are we looking here? And George says, well, the light is much better here. And the reason why this is a cautionary parable for us as Americans is there are always so many forces at work drawing us to look where the light is good, where the funding is, where we can get corporate sponsors, where it doesn't rock the boat. But if the keys really lie up the road in the dark places of our society, no matter how good our technique is under the lamppost, we'll never find the keys. There is nothing so practical as a good theory. Now, we've had a history of programs trying to deal with youth and youth violence that really are lamppost programs. One that was very popular 20 or 30 years ago called Scared Straight. The idea was, you want to get rid of a juvenile delinquency? No problem. Don't need to deal with poverty or racism or drugs or guns. Just send kids off to a prison for today and prisoners will lecture them on how terrible it will be to be in prison. You'll be raped, you'll be robbed, you'll be beaten and kids will be scared straight. 
They even made a video about it. Didn't have to take them to the prison, just show them the video. Sounds almost too good to be true. Well, when the research was done, it turns out it is too good to be true. It doesn't eliminate delinquency. It was so popular, you know, at the time I wrote a memo to Washington offering to solve all of America's social problems with a short series of videos. It was my video to eliminate poverty called Scared Rich. <laughs> which poor people would talk about how terrible it was to be poor and kids will say, well, gosh, I guess I'll be an investment banker instead. It was my video to deal with problems of old age called Scared Young. Well, today, of course, we have the D.A.R.E. program, over $250 million a year spent on the D.A.R.E. program, and once again, the research says it doesn't do it. And, of course, Court Levine would say, why would you think it would? What are the theoretical grounds for thinking that this program would defeat something as powerful as drug abuse? We need to think deeply, and one of the things we need in order to think deeply is an ecological perspective on violence. An ecological perspective means that we recognize that in matters of human development, rarely if ever, is there a simple cause-effect relationship that works the same way with all people in all cultures and all times. So much so that the best science tells us when the question in human development is, does X cause Y? The best answer is, it depends. Because it depends on the context in which that X and Y are occurring. For example, over 20 years ago, a study by Mednick looked at the question, are kids born with neurological damage more likely to end up as violent teenagers? And the answer was, it depends. If they were growing up in well-functioning, supportive families and communities, they were no more likely than biologically normal children to end up as violent teenagers. But if those damaged children were growing up in abusive and hostile families and communities, they were three or four times as likely as biologically normal children to end up as violent teenagers teenagers. It depends, it depends, it depends. That even applies to programs. You know, in many communities now, mentoring has achieved a status of being almost godlike. Apple pie, motherhood, and mentoring. But the obvious question is, does it work? And the answer is, it depends. A recent study found that a big thing upon which it depends is how long the mentor is in the life of the child. Less than two years, no helpful effect. Two and a half years or more, positive effects. Now here's a finding with tremendous practical implications. If you're setting up a mentoring program, one of the first questions you want to ask is, how long can you commit to? And if you can't commit to two and a half years or more, you might be better with no mentor at all. So we need to have this depth. We need to understand, for example, that rarely if ever does a single risk factor predict much about a child's outcome. Rather, the research tells us it is the accumulation of risk factors, the buildup. You know, in the wake of the Littleton shooting, I was spending 12 hours a day with journalists on TV and radio and print trying to help them make sense of this. And the question they kept asking was, what is it? What caused this? And I kept saying, it isn't anything. There is no cause. There is only the buildup of risk factors. Imagine a boy building a tower of blocks, block after block after block. Finally, you put one more block on top and the tower falls over. Do you really want to say that block is the cause? What you want to understand is that block in the context of those other blocks produces a toppled tower. And the development of boys is very much like that as well. Few, few things have a decisive effect. Rather, it is the buildup of things. Now, the good news coming from that for us as a community 
is that to do prevention, to do intervention, to change things, it means we don't all have to get on one bandwagon. Because there is no cause, there is only the buildup of causes, that means that each of us can pick out one of those causes to really focus on. Well, what are some of those causes? Well, one certainly is troubled boys. Undiagnosed, untreated, uncontrolled mental difficulties that produce difficulties with feeling, disordered thinking. And one thing we can know with confidence is that if we really attend to the mental health needs of children early on, we can do something about prevention. You know, research shows that since the 1970s, the proportion of our children who are troubled enough to need professional mental health services has about doubled, from about 10% in the early 1970s to nearly 20% by 1990. Mental health services in schools and communities have not kept pace. In fact, if anything, in many places they've declined at precisely the time the need has doubled. What are some of the other contributing risk factors? Well, there's the cultural climate in which kids are growing up. The American Psychological Association has looked at some of the evidence, looked at all the studies on the role of media violence and its effect in the development of children. And their conclusion is that there is a generalized effect. In fact, that the effect is about as strong as the effect of smoking on cancer. Now, we know that most people who smoke don't get cancer. My mother is 75 years old. She smoked for 65 years, I think. But even she would acknowledge that smoking is bad for your health. And the effect of media violence is like that. It has a general effect and it particularly focuses its effects on the most vulnerable kids. There's an issue we could address. Another part of the issue, of course, is what's come to be known as point-and-shoot video games. These are the games where you actually hold the weapon and shoot at the form on the screen. Why does this play a role? It doesn't make kids kill, but it enables kids to kill. The military has found that most human beings carry with them an inhibition about killing, and training someone to shoot at a bullseye target doesn't diminish that inhibition. That's why in World War II, when our soldiers went into combat, only 20% of them could fire their weapons at the enemy because they had learned to shoot at bullseye targets, but they hadn't disinhibited this protective factor. Well, when you change the training procedures as they've done, now 90% of soldiers can go into combat and fire at the enemy. And the finding is the most efficient way to do this known to humankind is the point-and-shoot video games that are in every mall and movie theater in many homes. So this is the single most efficient way to get you ready to kill. It doesn't make you kill, but enables you to kill if the other conditions come together. So the case, for example, of Michael Carneal in West Paducah, Kentucky is offered. A boy who had never fired a real gun before in his life, I'm told, but yet was able to walk into a crowded school and with nearly 100% accuracy shoot at other kids and hit them all in the chest or the head, precisely where he learned to shoot with 3,000 hours of practice on a point-and-shoot video game. Every cop in America is in greater danger because every boy in America can get ready to kill at his mall, his movie theater, or his bedroom. The factors build up. What are some of the other factors? Well, rejection is one of the factors, one of the at-risk factors. An anthropologist named Ronald Rohner, oh, 25 years ago, studied rejection in 118 cultures around the world. 
And he found that in every culture, kids who are rejected show whatever's bad in that culture. So much so that he called rejection a psychological malignancy, a psychological cancer. And of course, what's bad in our culture is the violence. And so it's not so surprised that rejected kids pick up on what's most worst in our culture and express it back to us as violence. And one of the boys involved in one of the school shootings said to the police officers interrogating him, I am so malicious because I am so miserable. And his misery comes in part from feeling excluded, rejected, belittled, and shamed. Now for some kids this begins and takes root in the family. That's where the core issues of rejection live for them. And those are the kids particularly who early in life show a pattern of rejection and acting out and violence and bad behavior and violating the rights of others, who by the time they're six or seven or eight already are clearly in this dangerous, dangerous pattern. For other boys, particularly temperamentally vulnerable boys who are supported and cared for and nurtured in their families, the issue takes place outside the family, particularly in their school. And these vulnerable boys, these troubled boys, when they confront the rejection they experience and feel in their schools, that's when they develop this psychological cancer. And then boys who may have seemed to get by in childhood come crashing down in adolescence when they confront the rejection of big high schools, for example, when they confront the bullying that's allowed to happen in schools. And bullying leads us to another risk factor, and that is the breakdown of the structure of adult authority in the lives of kids. When I was a teenager, I used to write a column for my high school newspaper 35 years ago. One week, I wrote a column in which I made fun of the fraternities in my high school. Certainly, in retrospect, bad idea. Because what I succeeded in doing was eliciting the anger of a lot of the boys in my high school, which is never a good idea. And sure enough, two nights later, these angry boys pulled up in front of my house in a car at midnight, and they dumped garbage on the lawn of my house as an act of intimidation. In today's language, you would say I was the victim of a drive-by littering. <laughs> well, boys today face something different. They would face, in the same situation, a drive-by shooting. In part because boys today don't have an idea that guns are psychologically unavailable to them. They don't have an idea that there are limits past which you can't go. Now, 35 years ago, the morning after the drive-by littering, when my father saw the garbage on our lawn, he figured he knew one of the boys involved. And he walked up to his house. You come out here and clean that up. You think today, how many fathers would feel brave enough or empowered enough to confront teenage boys that way? That erosion of the structure of adult authority is very dangerous for us as a society and for individual kids. When I was growing up, to some degree, kids were afraid of adults. Today, it's more likely adults are afraid of kids. Now, I don't think anybody should definitely be afraid, but I'll tell you, if you have a choice in your community between the kids being afraid of the adults or the adults being afraid of the kids, that's a no-brainer. You want a structure of authority within which kids can work because it keeps them safe. It keeps them safer and secure. And that, re that addresses another issue, which is how are adults perceived in terms of issues of justice and injustice in the lives of kids? Now, a lot has been said about putting police officers in school to make it safer. 
But I'm pretty convinced that that will only make schools safer if that police officer is interpreted by the kids as a voice for justice. So if you're being bullied and you know you can go to the cop in your school for support and assistance to restore the balance of justice, then your school will get safer. But if the police officer is seen as collaborating with the forces of injustice, it will probably only make things worse. So we need to understand that children are very sensitively attuned to issues of justice and injustice. And indeed, when they feel there is injustice, they often feel impelled to act violently to restore that balance of justice. You know, one of the cultural risk factors is a belief that if you are disrespected or dishonored, you must respond with violence and aggression to redress that. A recent study done in Cleveland asking the question, which teenagers carry guns, found the single biggest predictor was their belief that if somebody disrespects you, you must resort to violence to punish them for it. And this is something buried in the heads of many, many kids in our country. It's something that our country almost prides itself on, and yet it makes things more dangerous, particularly when all the other elements are put there with it. Another issue that, that uh, lies behind this accumulation of risk is the issue of shame, which is tied certainly to questions of injustice, tied to rejection. My colleague Jim Gilligan points out that shame is so dangerous because it produces a feeling in which you fear you will cease to exist, what he calls psychic annihilation. And when you feel this way, acts of violence and aggression are one of the few reliable ways to prove that you exist, to demand the world recognize your existence. Someone in a prison once told a colleague of mine, he said, I'd rather be wanted for murder than not be wanted at all. I'd rather be wanted for murder than not be wanted at all. Everyone has to be somebody. And if we don't allow positive meanings, negative meanings will have to suffice. Now this leads to what I think is one of the most powerful risk factors, and that's something I would call spiritual emptiness. And when I talk with boys who kill, I'm often brought back to this theme of spiritual emptiness. Research shows that kids who are involved in non-punitive religion are buffered from social pathologies. Not just religion per se, because most religions have at least two voices in them. There's a, a non-punitive voice, which emphasizes humility and the universality of love and reverence for life and connection. And most religions also have that punitive voice that emphasizes punishment and judgment and damnation and pain and suffering. And the research shows that that voice doesn't buffer you, but the, non, the spiritually oriented non-punitive voice does. Well, why is spiritual emptiness so dangerous in this equation? Because if a boy is spiritually empty, it means that he has a hole in his heart. And since every boy has to have some meaning, the dark side of the culture may rush in to fill that hole. If not reverence for life, then Marilyn Manson will be ready to take the place with a, with a vicious, nasty set of meanings to fill that hole. A second reason is that a spiritually empty boy has no sense of limits on his behavior. Because he's alone in the universe, if he becomes transcendently angry and full of rage, 
he can exhibit transcendent rage and anger in his behavior because he doesn't have a sense he lives within a larger moral universal spiritual framework that sets limits and finally a spiritually empty boy has no emotional foundation to fall back on if he gets sad he can go into emotional free fall where his sadness becomes profound because he can't say I may be sad but at least I know I live in a universe that is full of love and you put all these together and you begin to see why spiritual emptiness is such a potent factor, particularly in a society like ours that is so deeply troubled and struggling to find ways to teach spirituality and spiritual meaning to kids. When what they typically see is that the highest virtue is going to the mall. That the way you know your person is if you have a credit card. I see this so clearly when I talk with boys and young men who've been sentenced to life in prison because they know they're never going to the mall again ever and they feel like their life is over and only when they begin to appreciate that their spiritual life may be just beginning do they find a way to live with dignity and honor and positive behavior it's a lesson more boys could learn earlier if there was to be a lot less suffering for all of us a final influence I'll point to is the influence of peers one of the things that sort of keeps me up at night thinking about this issue is that even if you felt you understood an individual boy completely, you couldn't be completely confident because you don't know what that boy is going to do with other boys. The boys in, in Littleton, Colorado, Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris, at least Dylan, it seems from what we can learn about him, by himself would never have been a killer. But when put together with Eric Harris, they made a killer between them. Some of you may remember the novel by the book by Truman Capote in Cold Blood about the massacre of a whole family in Kansas by two young men. Capote looked deeply into their lives and concluded neither of these young men would have killed by himself. But when put together, they formed a killer. And this is particularly troublesome today because, because there are so many opportunities for boys to get peer support for their negative worldview, for their aggressive thinking, for their flamboyantly melodramatic violent behavior. I mean, 35 years ago, if you were a troubled, angry, aggressive boy in a small town, how would you ever assemble a whole group of boys like you to feel like you were part of a group? Today, you simply can log on to your computer and log on to, you know, letskillsomeone.com and have a feeling that you are part of a whole movement of other boys equally troubled who share your view of the world and it adds to the danger as all these other risk factors do of course we're talking about boys because we know that 90 percent of kids who kill are boys because we know in every culture in the world boys are more aggressive than girls because boys are biologically vulnerable in a way that girls typically aren't you know, your gender is determined by your X chromosomes and your Y chromosomes. Turns out if you had a choice, what you want is X chromosomes. The big, robust X chromosome, it's got 5,000 genes on it. So if you have two of them, as you do if you're a woman, and you have something wrong on one X chromosome, chances are you've got a good gene on the other chromosome to balance it out. Some of us get one good X chromosome and one pathetic, shriveled up little Y chromosome. And if you look under a microscope, that's the way it looks. The X chromosome is big and robust, and the Y chromosome is a shriveled up little thing. As my mentor used to say, it won't do much for you, but at least it'll make a man out of you.
Well, boys are more vulnerable. The X chromosome has 5,000 genes. The Y chromosome has got 25 genes. So all of us, boys and men, we start out life 4,975 genes short. And as you can tell, we're pretty angry about it. Somebody understands this. At, at conception, there are 120 males conceived for every 100 females conceived. We need a head start. By birth, it's 106 males for every 100 females. And then sometime in adolescence, early adulthood, depending upon where and when you live, it evens out, and after that, goodbye. So by old age in our society, it's 60 males for every 100 females. This vulnerability to boys is compounded by the culture that teaches boys that sadness is an untenable emotion. And so boys convert their sadness into aggression and addiction and rage. And I think that's an important understanding we need to have because behind most aggressive, scary, violent boys is a sad child, a sad little boy who's hurting and who can't tell us that. And if we could find a way to look beyond their behavior, control it as we need to, and look at their inner lives, we'd begin to appreciate that and heal them and make things safer. So there's a lot that we could do as a society to respond to all of this. Improve mental health services, character education in all the schools, to, to organize kids' behavior around these core values of responsibility and integrity and respect. Meditation and reflection to encourage the deeper sense of spirituality that all of us are capable of. A real careful look at issues of justice and injustice in our schools and our communities so every kid can feel regular rather than, than less than something uh, positive. Uh, promoting acceptance, helping parents deal with difficult children. There's a whole wide agenda, getting those point-and-shoot video games out of the mall and the arcade and the home. All of these issues will contribute to disassembling that tower of blocks. And I think it's about time we got started. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Garbarino. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. I'm David Nasby, the moderator of today's forum. Today's guest is Dr. James Garbarino, who has just spoken on the topic, Lost Boys, Why Our Sons Turned Violent. While the ushers collect questions from the audience here at Westminster, I'd like again to thank the sponsors of today's forum, the McKnight Foundation, the Star Tribune Foundation, and the law firms of Dorsey and Whitney, Fagri and Benson, Robbins, Kaplan, Miller, and Cerisi. We would also like to thank the staff members of the Washburn Child Guidance Center, the St. Joseph Home for Children, and the Harriet Tubman, Tubman Center for their assistance in planning this series of forums. Dr. Garbarino, if you would return to the podium, we'll begin the questions. What is the, uh, let's begin with, uh, what is the role of father absence? Well, I think the, you know, the research shows that absence of a parent is one of the risk factors. By itself, like any single risk factor, it's certainly tolerable. And the research shows that if that's the only risk factor, 
uh, chances are kids will find a way to get around it. It tends, of course, to be associated with other risk factors. Uh, in the lives of the boys who come to violence most early and are most destructively oriented, what's really so common, however, is not father absence, but mother absence. Abandonment by mothers, the, the absence of mothers in their lives early on. Um, so I think I would put it in the context of parental absence being a challenge, but like any challenge, its impact depends on the larger context. Uh, particularly boys without fathers are probably prone to uh, to only being able to see the kind of exterior, external uh, dimensions of manhood. Uh, power assertion, bravado, strength, without seeing the, the core values of responsibility and caring and, 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 uh, and discipline that also are present, but are harder to see from the outside, particularly in a culture which shows boys so many men on television and movies who uh, don't really exhibit many of those traits. The good news is that mentoring programs that involve a man in the long term in a boy's life can uh, repair an awful lot of that uh, risk. Um, this is from, the questioner says, seven years ago I taught at a high school in the south that was plagued with violence, including a shooting which resulted in the death of one student. The administrators managed to keep the, uh, the event out of the media to protect the reputation of the institution in the community. How would you advise an administrator to handle acts of violence for the good of the institution, faculty, students, and the community? Well, I think it is clear that certainly community and public perceptions respond very sensitively to media presentation. A study in Miami found, for example, that people's perception of how violent Miami was was much more related to the news coverage of it than it was to the actual events going on. We do know that, I think from research on suicides, that media coverage of teenage suicide can lead other kids who are right on the edge and push them over the edge. So I think administrators would want to be very careful about managing public information about these events, but obviously they need to act within the school. I was talking with a principal in Rochester, New York, who took over what was probably the most out of control violent school in the city. And the way he began to reclaim the school was to say that he would be at the door greeting every student who walked in the door. So when you walk in the door, he would look you in the eye and say, welcome to school today, giving the message, this is a setting that adults are taking charge of. I think of one of the boys I was interviewing in a youth prison once where a new director had come in and, and really taken charge and created a safe and secure environment for kids. He walked by one time and this boy could see him through the window and he said to me, you see that guy? I said, yeah, he said, he's the owner. Not the director, but the owner. And this was the first facility this boy had ever been in which he felt he could kind of put his knife away and feel safe enough to go about the business of being in a program. I think that's, that's the crucial issue. Assuming training children to manage conflict in the pre and elementary school levels can greatly reduce violence, why isn't such training a requirement in all school curriculum, or is it? Are there school districts and regions where this is a requirement? Well, I think there's a growing trend to uh, requiring attention to violence prevention programming uh, at the elementary, the middle, and the secondary level. So I think that is coming. I think, uh, in fact, we did a study in Chicago, though, that found that the earlier you start, the more powerful it is. 
And then in some situations, the most violent neighborhoods, you have to have very reasonable, uh, very low expectations of this because there's so many forces uh, surrounding the school in the lives of the kids that work against it. Uh, but I do think it's certainly part of the um, of the solution and uh, schools need to understand that in order to do their core academic mission they're going to have to do uh, a lot of character education to make that feasible. One teacher, one principal told me recently that they had given up their entire rule book and instead substituted a character education program. So if a kid does something, they don't say you broke rule number 42, they say how do you square what you did with the five core values of character education. And they report a 45% decrease in disciplinary problems in the first year. So I think there's a larger picture in which this does play a role, an important role. The questioner is uh, in training to be a special education teacher and says, I agree with you that the breakdown of authority contributes to distress and despair. Can you explain the need for authoritative versus authoritarian styles? Well, many years ago, the child development researcher Diana Baumrein did a study in which she compared permissive child-bearing, uh, in which the parent says, I'm the child's parent, therefore I do what they want, with authoritarian child-bearing, where the parent says, the child is my property, so I dispose of it how I want, with the authoritative pattern, where the parent says, There's a, I'm an authority, but I engage in negotiation with the children to eventually grant them that authority when they get to be adults. And I think that captures the difference that in an authoritarian system, all the direction is one way from the authority to the lower orders without any developmental idea that your goal eventually is to transfer authority in a democratic way over to the, the people who start out in a subordinate position. An authoritative system does that, but it does it in a way that is developmentally appropriate. You don't say to a five-year-old, you know, uh, what do you want to do? You give choices. Do you want to do this or do you want to do that? And I think authoritative systems, whether they're homes or schools, provide that, and they help kids get through. Here's the uh, question from a person who says he has uh, approximately 14 boys here today that are between the ages of 12 and 18. He heard you in Red Wing, and... Uh, he wants to know what you, you can give to these boys as words of inspiration or thoughts related to courage that can boost their attempts to develop their feelings. Well, I would say that, you know, I have traveled, uh, I've been to a lot of places in the world. I was in Cambodia, I was in Kuwait and Iraq at the time of the Gulf War, um, Yugoslavia. And all around the world there are boys who struggle with the same kind of issue. What they tend to have that many American boys don't have is they have some belief in a larger purpose to what they're doing. And when they have that belief, that kind of organizes and protects them and provides a foundation for their courage. It certainly takes a lot of courage. So I would say to those boys that you have to be part of something bigger than yourself. Your, your history, your culture, your society, your neighborhood, your some positive group that you're part of that's bigger than you as an individual and that you pledge yourself to. Uh, and that's where the code of honor really makes sense. That honor is about supporting the positive, larger structures that you're part of. Country, church, neighborhood, community, school, whatever it is. 
And in America that's hard because we're a nation of individuals. Uh, other cultures have it easier because they teach people early on that you, the meaning of your life is not just you as an individual, but you as, but we as a part of a group. And I think I would try to help our boys have a sense of that. Can you comment on how you think the current focus on punishment for troubled adolescents affects the outcomes for these kids? Well, I think there's a growing understanding in the research community that um, punishment, certainly by itself, uh, produces more anger, uh, more hatred, more aggression, more trouble down the line. Um, and I don't think we could ever build prisons fast enough to keep up with our ability to generate the need for them if that's our predominant strategy. Most of the most troublesome boys, not that they haven't been punished, they've been punished brutally, mercilessly, but they haven't been well enough typically as loved. And love is not simply, doesn't simply mean have a nice day. Love means taking care in a structured way in which there's authority and guidance, but without assault. How does uh, our overemphasis on sports and win-lose uh, situations affect lost boys? Well, I think a good place to start with that is the American high school. And in the 1950s, research showed that small high schools uh, produce a very different climate from big high schools um, because they encourage participation. In the small high school, everyone is needed. The football coach walks around and says, son, you got two arms and legs, come on down, we need you. <laughs> the choir director says, honey, sing me a note. And you go, ah, oh, it's okay, you're an alto, we need you. And as a result, they found in the 50s, small high schools have less dropouts, less delinquency, less all the bad stuff you don't want. Uh, and they found that the average size of small high schools was about 500. When they got bigger than about 500, grades nine through 12, this dynamic of bigness took over. Well, in 1955, the average size of America's high schools was 500. By 1975, it was 1,500. The reason I begin the question that way is that what's really important is participation. And yet, the win-lose mentality has driven us to think that the important thing is winning. I went to a high school so small that I played quarterback on the football team. That's how pathetic we were. We actually won a game once. We were so stunned we didn't know what to do with it. But at our 30th high school reunion, out of 160 graduates, 140 of the 150 still alive showed up. And we had a tremendous sense of connection because we had no choice but to be together. And I think if we could focus on those kinds of issues, some of the folly of the win-lose mentality would become clear because uh, you know, everybody loses eventually. And the question really is not how you play the game, but today the question is, do you get to play the game? And so I think we could do well to focus on participation rather than competitiveness of that sort. The questioner would like you to say a little more about punitive religious messages versus non-punitive. Well, a lot of boys that I speak with in jail have no shortage of religious indoctrination. Uh, they're beaten in the name of God. They're shamed in the name of God. They're told they're worthless in the name of God. And it doesn't make them a better person. 
In contrast, kids who are told they're accepted in the name of God, they're cared for in the name of God, they're loved in the name of God, have a better chance of it. So I think the issue is, is to get at this reality that human beings are f first and foremost spiritual beings having a physical experience rather than simply animals with complicated brains. That's where it starts. Uh, Alexander Graham Bell, the great inventor and genius, uh, at one point when he was an adult met Helen Keller, who I hope many of you remember was a very, who became this most famous blind, mute, and deaf woman in our country. She was a very well-known intellectual. But he met Helen Keller when she was eight years old. And he was so impressed with her, he wrote a letter about her. And this is what he wrote. He wrote to a friend. He said, I feel that in this child I have seen more of the divine than has been manifest in anyone I ever met before. He didn't say what a pretty child, what a smart child, what good clothes she had. He recognized her divinity. And I think that this non-punitive religion that's where it goes. It goes to the divinity in each of us. It goes to our spiritual stature and nurtures and encourages. It doesn't try to pound us down or belittle us as this punitive voice in religion does. And so I think there's a very important message there. And non-religious spirituality can go a long way towards doing that too. So that's one reason why I begin every class at Cornell with a moment of meditative silence. To ask every student before we talk about matters of human development to reflect on what's deepest and highest in them and bring that to the class rather than rushing in, you know, and, and all the rest of it. Final question. It appears that many parents are working in environments that are mean, disrespectful, and undignified. Do you believe that this contributes to violence in young people? Well, there is research by a woman named Ann Crowder years ago that looked at the spillover between the environment at work and the environment at home. And she found that there's a lot of connections both ways. People learn things at work that they bring home, and they learn things at home they bring to work. And so if the world of work is nasty, brutish, and short, it stands to reason they will bring that home with them. And by the same token, if people have terror and tragedy at home, they bring it to the workplace. So there's a lot of connection in the lives of people, whether they recognize it or not. And that's one reason why I think we need to, to look for a general uplifting of the quality of life in every setting with the expectation it will make for a more peaceful, safe, and uh, harmonious society. Like the Declaration of Independence says, you know, the goal is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, I'm told that Jefferson originally wrote life, liberty, and the pursuit of public happiness. But Benjamin Franklin told him that was redundant. We didn't need the word public. Everybody would know he meant public happiness. Thanks a lot, Ben, you know, I mean, uh, uh, we kept, if we kept that in, life, liberty, and pursuit of public happiness, it would be so clear that the point is a good society, not selfishness. And I think that's as true of the world of work as it is of the world of home and community. Dr. Garbarino, thank you very much for joining us today at the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Thank you.